You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left.NYC and Stage Left, the podcast. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Here we are. Yeah, we're back. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's been so wild during this time of quarantine and self-isolation and COVID-19 to think about how in 2018, when we picked the title of the show, uh, we had no idea that it would take on such added meaning in just two years. You know, <laughs> the fabulous invalid, Broadway's always in decline and always bouncing back. We're in the decline right now, but we will be bouncing back. But yes, it is sort of ironic that... Uh, uh, that the world has taken this terrible turn. But um, yeah, you know, it's interesting to read on Twitter or in the media, people are now using the term the fabulous invalid yeah. to talk about the theater. And, yes. um, I, you know, as, as you were alluding to, I feel a little vindicated because, as we've mentioned before, we've it's a weird title. Little, it is a weird title. I understand that the word invalid is a touchy word. Yeah. And words matter, and they have meaning, and I get that. But I love what this means. I've always loved the idea of the theater being this sort of cyclical thing, that it has its ups and its downs. And, and that's actually the point of these episodes. First with our flops, and now we're going to focus on the hits with a three-parter. So it's gotten even bigger. And it's so interesting how intertwined these two things are. And in doing these shows, how thin the line is between a flop and a hit and mm. how how it really can go either way. And, and we certainly learned that with flops and we're going to learn that with hits today. But we're going to focus, like we did last time, on the modern era of musical theater beginning uh, around the time of Oklahoma. And to avoid making a list that is too presentist, we didn't just use the number of performances as our metric because, you know, obviously hit shows are running now longer than ever before. In fact, 13 of the top 20 longest running Broadway shows opened in the past 40 years alone. 
and only 121 shows have ever run more than 1,000 performances. But as of March, nine of those shows were still running on Broadway. So things are running a lot longer than they ever did before. So we're not just using length of run as our only metric in building this list. So we decided to pick a combination of the biggest, longest running, and most culturally important hits since Oklahoma revolutionized the musical, each laying some claim to being the Hamilton of their time. Yes. And just like last week, we used Carrie as our, as our lens to kick off the way we were going to look at flops. I think it's helpful to think of Hamilton you know, as being the same sort of lens for all the shows that we're going to look at, you know, simply because it's something that we can wrap our heads around today and understanding sort of the magnitude of, of what a gigantic hit on Broadway looks and feels like and what it does for the culture you know, writ large. And I think that's you know, part of what makes Hamilton so unique is that it is a show that has had... Uh, sort of penetrated the culture of America and globally to become sort of a household name. And that's kind of going to be the same case for every musical that we're going to talk through on this episode. Well, it's interesting that we're already talking about Hamilton in the context of being one of the greatest hits ever in Broadway's history. And it's only in, you know, it's still in the infancy of its run, really, if you if you think about it. It's, what's it, what is it, five years into the yeah, run? Yeah, it's been running for five years now, just under 2,000 performances. Alexander Hamilton Troops are waiting in the field for you If you join us right now Together we can turn the tide Oh, Alexander Hamilton I have soldiers that will yield for you If we manage to get this right They'll surrender my early life I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Hamilton is in the league of the shows that we're talking about. That's not my point. But it's also so interesting that we're already using Hamilton as sort of the the measure by which these shows are judged. And it's still, you know, it's still a relatively young show when you look at the length of how long shows run these days. Yeah, yeah. The thing that's that's the biggest tell about Hamilton is that um, in just five years, it has grossed around $622 million. Um, and by comparison, The Phantom of the Opera, which has been on Broadway for 30 years, um, has grossed $1.2 billion in that time. So Hamilton has made almost half as much as as the Phantom of the Opera in five years. Um, and that show has been running for 30. So it's already the seventh highest grossing show on Broadway history and has cleared, you know, or will clear 2,000 performances um, shortly after coming back, whenever Broadway's back. Um, so it, by any measure, it's clearly, you know, one for the books.
we got into trouble with <laughs> Hamilton a little bit um, last year, right? Because when we did our best of uh, the decade. That's right. We <laughs> Both of us left Hamilton off of it. And yes, inadvertently. Yeah. Well, inadvertently, but also, I mean, I think, I think I'll speak for myself. It just didn't come to my mind. So even though that's that, I guess that technically that was not by design, but also it was by design because I don't think of it that often because I feel like it, as much as I love it. And I actually listened to, I listened to the album today because uh, I hadn't heard it in a while. So I, yeah. I put it on and it's magnificent, but it's not, it's, and I've seen it three or four times. Uh, I've seen it three times actually. Uh, and I, and I love it, but it's not part of my daily routine. It's not in my soul. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because a, a lot of the shows that we're going to talk about in this episode, we sort of grew up with, right? We either experienced them when they first came out or, you know, we, we've spent years and years living with them and they've become sort of a part of our DNA. Whereas, as you said at the top of this, Hamilton's only been around for five years. And in those initial five years, it's really hard to access, right? I mean, you can listen to the album, you can engage in all the fan culture around it, but to actually sit down at the Richard Rogers Theater costs a lot of money and you have to wait a long time and that's still the case. So, you know, it, it's, it's unlike some of these other shows, I think for us as theater goers, as frequent theater goers, because, you know, you've seen it three times, I've seen it twice. Um, and, you know, it's not something I plan to do in a long time because I, I don't want to shell out that money. I'd rather see, you know, four other shows for the price of what it would cost me to see Hamilton. I agree with that. And I, and I, think, I think it's a marvelous show. And I think it, um, it definitely deserves its place in the history and the context oh. in which we're, we're framing all of this. You know, one other thing I will say, and I'm sort of a bad person in a way to be doing a show about hits because I'm a natural underdog person, <laughs> which is why the flop show really spoke right. to me. I'm going to not love some of these hit shows because <laughs> I tend to love the underdog, you know, and I, and we've, I've, I've actually gotten some flack in doing this show, our show over the last 83 episodes. I've gotten some flack about, you know, my, my taste in theater and what I like to promote and what I'm drawn to. And, yeah. you know, that's fine. I mean, I think that's the wonderful thing about theater. There's something for every everyone. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time shitting on these <laughs> wonderful shows, but it is funny to me that I'm such a contrarian and yeah. I, I well, tend to really like the things that don't, I tend to resist things that I'm told I need to love because they're part of the cultural zeitgeist. Right. A hundred percent. Well, that's, you know, sort of what I was getting at, you know, the sort of the, the, the flip side of the fact that we've lived with some of these shows for so long is that because of that, you can sort of take them for granted or come to resent them because, oh, you know, uh, it, it's a show that gets done all the time or, oh, that's what tourists see or that's what, you know, that's what high schools do or whatever, right? Um, but there's a reason why you get to the point where it's a show that tourists want to come see because, you know, it's very successful and that doesn't always mean that it's, you know, meritorious critically um, or that it represents some achievement artistically. Um, but, you know, a hit can come in many different ways, just like a flop can come in many different ways. You know, when I saw Hamilton for the first time, uh, it was the day after it opened on Broadway. And so I, no one had heard the music yet. No one knew what it sounded like. There was no cast album. You couldn't experience it except for sitting in the theater. And I sat back at the end of it. I was somewhat overwhelmed because it's a lot to take in on one viewing, especially if you don't know any of the words or music going into it. But what I said to my, my friend Maya, who was with me, was more so than representing any sort of innovation in the musical theater, because I don't think that Hamilton actually does represent any sort of innovation in the musical theater, 
to me, what it represents is just the perfection of the form, right? It, it's a testament to when you have a really incredible artist, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he's given the space and the time to develop something, which is what the public theater provided off-Broadway, um, you can create something as magnificent and gorgeous and celebrated as Hamilton. And to me, that was its greatest accomplishment as a piece of theater, is that it represented sort of the apotheosis of the musical theater form. Um, you know, obviously in a specific genre that it's working in, it's not Hello, Dolly, um, which I would also <laughs> say represents that same apotheosis. Um, but, you know, it, it's almost now, as you were alluding to, becomes kind of like uncool to like Hamilton because it's so cool, you know? <laughs> Well, okay. So as long as we're telling my first Hamilton yeah. story, um, you know, I went, I saw it early in the run. I showed up, I sat in my seat and I folded my arms across my chest and I thought to myself, <laughs> prove it. Right. Break some ground, Hamilton. Yeah. Show yeah. me how good you are. I, I, I will admit I had a little bit yeah. of an attitude about it. And I have to say within seconds of it starting, I was swept away and taken by it. And I think what was so surprising to me in that first viewing of Hamilton as groundbreaking as it is or revolutionizing the form or whatever you want to say about it, it's really just a good old fashioned musical. Well, right. And yeah. it, and it, and it, it, which is what you were saying. Yes, and, and, yeah. and, and, and I, that wasn't what I, I was not expecting that to happen. I was expecting it to be all these things I thought it was. And what it really is, is just a very good traditional musical. It's quiet uptown. Forgiveness. Once it sort of made the leap and permeated pop culture, I sort of had, I sort of bristled anytime, you know, someone who doesn't really know musicals would point out to Hamilton. I'd be like, okay, great. Now that you know Hamilton, there's all these other great musicals you can discover that are also just as well crafted and, you know, are also good representations of what you can do with this form. But I will say it, it is certainly, and I agree with you 100%, it is one of the few times in my life where something lived up to the hype. Yeah, and I, and I saw that. it. I saw it two years later in 2017, and I walked in with the arms crossed. You know, sort of prove it, prove that you're still worthy of this. And I was like crying five minutes in. You know, so it it totally, totally proves its worth and and, and, and holds up. And to add to that point, and then we'll I think yeah, we then, can then move, we'll move on. on. Yeah, I, I saw it about a year plus after it opened on Broadway in San Francisco. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I had an even better experience the second time around. I absolutely yeah. loved that. And of course, it's the same production, with Jeff, but I loved it so much more. And I, I think part of it is because by that point, I was more familiar with the score and I had gotten, you know, I'd fallen in love with it. But I think it was also, that was a wonderful company, just like mm -hmm. the Chicago company and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think that again, like all theater, 
it changes with the with the actors and with the environment and with this the the San Francisco audience was really extraordinary. So there's so many different interesting sort of things whirling around what makes something a success and what makes your experience of that what it is. And I think we should um, move on to our very first show. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, so just like with the flops, we're going to break these down into categories. So our our first category, it's, it's, it's Jamie's way of, of sneaking in multiple shows per category. So we're not right, just doing right. 10. We're not, look, I'm complicit. I, I'm with you on it. Way to throw me out of the bus, Rob. Well, because it's your innovation. I want to celebrate your, your cleverness, Jamie. <laughs> oh, is that it's, what it is? It's an ode to Jamie. Yes. Mm. No. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so this first category is going to have two shows in it. Um, and I label them the OGs. Well, when I saw that, I thought, God, that's so not Rob Russo to say, oh, geez, <laughs> right. but it fits. Well, it's, and, and it's, you know, it has double meaning because they're, they're, oh. they're such not gangster shows. Right, exactly. Um, it's, it's, or they're so not gangsta, but right. in a way they are, in a way they are, because what they we're talking were in about. in their time, yes. Right, a lot of people have said that Oklahoma, which no surprise mm-hmm. to anybody listening, is the show we're going to start with. People yes. say it was the Hamilton of its day, and yep. although I don't love that description, um, it's accurate. You'd you'd rather people say that Hamilton is the Oklahoma of now, right? Girl, you'd rather yes. flip that around. Yeah, yeah. you know it. <laughs> well, we we've talked about Oklahoma on this show before. Um, oh, once or whole, twice. Once a well, well, just about every other episode. Um, but we did a whole episode um, around the revival with Mary Testa and Ali Stroker as guests. Um, <laughs> go and check it out. Um, Do you know what? Can I, I have to stop you for one second because. I thought you were actually billing that Oklahoma as Mary Testa's Oklahoma, uh, which well, I think is, yeah, you know, look, for me, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, for a certain uh, genre of fan, that was the case. Yeah, <laughs> you were there for Mary Testa. Sorry, you I know? just, I, I got to get a little Mary Testa love in. Sorry. Well, we, always, we always do. Anytime her name is mentioned, uh, brings a smile to my face. Um, but uh, Oklahoma, right, um, was the first collaboration of Rogers uh, and Hammerstein, um, the first piece that they worked on together, but, you know, launching this partnership that revolutionized Broadway, right? So it makes sense that it would it would be first. And uh, what we've talked about on the show before, and I've, I've sort of vented to Jamie before, is like he's like my therapist, um, is my whole life, I was always like, okay, so what is the big deal about Oklahoma? Like, really, what is it? What is it about Oklahoma that made it such a transformational moment in the American theater? And I, I never really got a satisfying answer until I read the Todd Purdom book, Something Wonderful. And he articulated it so well, um, because there's so many, you know, you can point to any one innovation in the show and you can find some other show that did it before them, right? So it's not necessarily that Oklahoma was the first to do any of the things that it did, right? To, to sort of eschew conventions by having an opening number that was very, you know, m- modest to, uh, to have a, 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 a ballet sequence, right? The dream ballet at the end of act one, um, or to, you know, tackle serious subject matter. Like all of these things had happened before. What made Oklahoma so groundbreaking is that it was the first to do all of these at once. And, you know, and in service to serious character development. Um, and of course, with outstanding success, right? I mean, <laughs> you, had, you couldn't just do the innovations. You had to do them really well. Um, and that's what they did. You know, they, they integrated dance into drama. They broke with all the musical comedy conventions of the 20s and 30s and, you know, took this play, Green Grow the Lilacs by Lynn Riggs, and completely elevated the material with the addition of, of their 
just incredible score. I love this story, and I just have to tell you now, the whole reason the idea of musicalizing Green Grow the Lilacs came about, there was a production at the Westport Playhouse, and they did a revival of the play, and there was a, a woman from the Theater Guild by the name of Terry Helburn, who was in the audience that night. And one of the devices that they did with this production was they brought in a young dancer by the name of Gene Kelly to <laughs> stage some of the musical numbers. And those yeah. musical numbers were, there was like a hoedown and there was like a square dance and there was a little bit of dancing that was part of the story. And Terry Halburn from the Theater Guild was in the audience that night and she had this flash that it should be a musical. Hmm. So she started trying to make this happen. And the response that she continually got Musicals don't have murderers in the second act. Right. Which I love <laughs> because now they do. Now they do, right? Yeah. I'll talk about innovation. <laughs> it's like what you were saying earlier. I mean, it, there's, it's 40 minutes before there's a huge dance number, right? Mm -hmm. Kansas City comes at about 35 minutes into the piece. That was yeah. unheard of, along right. with all the other unheard of things you mentioned a moment ago. Like right. that just was so crazy. And yet it works so beautifully. It was a, a perfect example of Oscar Hammerstein's, um, you know, sort of genius as a dramatist that he understood and had the, you know, the bravery to break with those conventions because it was what would serve the material best, right? right. And that's right. and that's how he how he would justify any sort of break from what, say, you know, some other. Uh, songwriting duo or or musical theater duo would have done. Um, is you have to let, you know, sort of this is what Stephen Sondheim reduces to, you have to let the content dictate the form, right? And, right. and that is what he did. And it's, it's actually, I've never done the analysis, but uh, I've read that the, the musical follows the play pretty closely. I mean, even down, to, even down to lines of dialogue that are just transposed right from the play. Right from it. I think the, like one of the major differences is that Judd is called Jeter. <laughs> right. Like, that's one of the big changes. And and Ado Annie. That was a good change. That was a good yeah, change. And Ado Annie is sort of a frumpy wallflower mm. kind of character. Yeah. She's not yeah. the big, you know, because they needed, you know, there were some conventions they had yeah, to you follow. Have to have the second, but yeah, I think yeah, you make a very good point yeah. because in in that in those days, the convention was to have the form dictate the audience needs. And mm -hmm. what Oscar Hammerstein did, as you so smartly put it, was flip that, right? right? Change that whole paradigm and make it about the piece. And, right. and he understood that audiences, I, I think probably because he had had some success with Showboat years right. earlier, yes. that he mm -hmm. understood that audiences were smarter than they were given credit for. And I think also credit is to um, Ruben Mamoulian, the director, yes. mm -hmm. who, who had, let's face it, hadn't done a I hadn't done a Broadway show in in uh, in, in uh, fifteen years or something like that. He had gone out to Hollywood and made movies, but he had directed Porgy and Bess, which also didn't 
take the audience's intellect for granted. Right. And, and yeah. I think those are huge things, but I agree with you. It's Oscar 100% who drove that home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this was 1943, you know, uh, there was, we were still in World War II, and the show ran five years and two months, which was completely unheard of. I mean, you know, a musical typically didn't run more than one season, and this was yeah. a show that ran five years at the St. James Theater. It broke the record within, like, two years of being the longest-running um, uh, show and, and held that title of longest-running musical for 15 years, which is the longest you know, time that any show has held that title in the modern age. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't just that it was big in the moment. It was big for the next two decades, right? It held that place um, and really changed the terrain of Broadway. Um, it won a, sort of a special Pulitzer Prize in 1944. There were no Tony Awards yet, um, but I'm willing to bet that had there been Tony Awards in 1944, they would have won all of them. Um, you think? For, yeah, I'm willing. Because you can name another show from 1943. I mean, I can't. No, I, yeah, I can't either. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, well, they would have been reviews, largely, right? right? Exactly. They would have been, would have been these that's... things, an heiress marries a prince, and right. her jewelry that's gets stolen. That's the show you saw on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, uh, I, I do have to say, I, I, this I love, that yeah. um, when it opened out of town in New Haven, um, mm-hmm. Walter Winchell wrote, no legs, no jokes, no chance. Ha! This is something else I love from that from that run in New Haven. This was actually, I think, on the first performance. Yeah. Uh, the producer, Max Gordon, was so nervous uh, that during intermission, he started hitting up investors that he heard speaking <laughs> positively about the show to see if he could um, divest his own investment in the show. And he oh was quite successful at, at it to the point where he almost completely got out of the show and thank God for him, I guess he didn't because he, you know, ended up making a lot of money on it. But can you imagine? Like oh my he gosh. so didn't believe in his own thing that he yeah. wanted it out of it. And uh, that's amazing. Uh, well, you know, the 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 total budget of the show was eighty three thousand dollars, which you know, <laughs> for the time was you know a pretty a penny. Today you can't do anything for eighty three thousand dollars. I mean, literally, right? Um, no. But you know, it's a good thing he didn't completely divest himself because um, investments in the show received a twenty five. Hundred percent return, right? So a thousand dollars became two point five million in return. I I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but what other show has that happened on? Is that just seems so well, unusual? I think to me. we're we're about to talk we're, about one, right? The, the next <laughs> oh. show. In fact, should we should we transition, or do you have anything no, else you I want have, to say I have about two, Oklahoma? No, I have two. Well, you know, I love Oklahoma. I know I, we can talk I, about I, Oklahoma I could, all day. Yeah, well, we've done a whole show on it, so. Yeah. But, um, which you should listen to, it's very good. Yeah. Um, but two other things, I did not know this, and I know a fair amount about o- Oklahoma. The original person they wanted to play Lori, do you know who it was? No. Shirley Temple. Oh my gosh. Shirley Temple, who was 15 or 16 yeah, years old at the time. Child. Her, yeah. A child. So that's yeah. a whole nother level of like, wow. you know, weirdness. And also it's a different time and whatnot. Right. I, and granted, she was a big star. So I understand yeah, why you would course. do that. Yeah. But I also think they, they, I think, I think Rogers and Hammerstein thought she could really pull it off. I don't, yeah. they were very smart about casting. You know, they didn't do mm-hmm. stunt casting oh, of course. Yeah. Um, ever. And I, th- her parents were the ones that thought it was not appropriate for her brand. Um, yeah. 
Uh, although I don't think they called it brand in 43. <laughs> but, um, and then the one final thing I have to say, because I would encourage everyone listening to this show to go to the YouTubes yes, and the YouTubes. type in the University of North Carolina's restoration of Oklahoma, mm. if only to see what it actually would have looked like in its day. So this university, several years ago, d- they found as much information as they could about the original production, and they reconstructed it perfectly. It's impeccable. It, yeah. It's and it's so like not what you think it right. it, it it looks like. I liken it to Oz. You sort of like you 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 step into this world where the colors are just so bright, and you're like, what is going on? You would never design a show like this today. <laughs> never. And it, uh, in one way, it looks so phony, and yet yeah. in its day, it was so. Revolutionary, so it was so modern, and um, so it's really worth looking at it. Even if you only watch it for a few minutes, I suggest you watch the ballet because it's magnificent. Um, But it's really we haven't mentioned her yet, Agnes DeMille. No, and you know she was apparently quite a handful on this production. You know she was very. It was her first kind of big thing in Mm -hmm. theater. You know she she she'd had a career in the dance world, so it was kind of a a risk or a chance they took on on hiring her, and apparently she gave them all. All a lot of hell. Um, <laughs> God love her, though. She stuck to her guns, and yeah. um, you know the proof is in the pudding. To this day, Oklahoma remains the 34th longest-running Broadway show, which is not bad considering you know how long shows are running since Oklahoma, right? Five years now, you say five years, it's like okay, that's a healthy run for a hit musical. But you know, at the time, of course, that had never happened, and it still you know it still makes the list. Um, and of course, there have been five revivals, uh, of which I've been fortunate to see two. Um, and I know Jamie's obsessed with the 1979 revival. Well, it was perfection, and <laughs> and it was the it was the thing that turned me on to Oklahoma. You know, it yeah. was not it was not my high school you production. Ne- you never forget that Oklahoma that turned you on to Oklahoma. No, never, never, never. And yeah. and I mean, Christine Andreas, yeah, Christine oh, yeah. Ebersole, all the Harry Groner. I mean, it's 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 it was a magnificent production. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, moving on to our second show, our second OG uh, of, of this category. Uh, we already alluded to it uh, gently, and that is My Fair Lady. Yes. Which, yeah, which, you know, is the most successful musical of the 1950s. Um, also ended up being uh, the longest running show on Broadway, a title it held from 1961 until 1970. Um, and uh, has you know spawned four revivals, so it's 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 never it's never long before you see another revival of My Fair Lady. Um, and I guess there's there's a certain reason for that. Um, Jamie, do you want to go first, or should I go first in in telling our truth, our collective truth, our shared truth? Rob, I think you should fall on the sword first. I'm going to fall on the sword, and we're going to get some hate mail. I don't care for My Fair Lady. I really I hate don't. This show. I yeah. I, I just. I, it, <laughs> 
I, it does nothing for me. I agree with Stephen Sondheim. They painted the lily. It has no reason to be a musical. I, I don't understand why it's a musical. Um, I, I don't find it enchanting. I don't find it romantic. I, I've never, I mean, I enjoyed the Lincoln Center revival because it was Lincoln Center. And, you know, they do a fabulous job with everything they do. It was a gorgeous production. Lauren Ambrose, I thought, was actually pretty great. I liked um, her. And Laura, yeah, and Laura Bonanti was a superb replacement. Um, so that, Couldn't you do know, it. Couldn't go back. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just don't care for it. I understand, you know, all the reasons why I should love it, and I just never have. Um, but that's that's me. But uh, you know, look, it was the longest running musical on Broadway for ten years. It was the Hamilton of the 1950s. Like you know, clearly there was something there that people <laughs> loved in the time and continue to love because it keeps being done. Well, okay, now we should say some nice things about My Fair Lady. It yes. does have a fabulous score, and I think that part of its enduring legacy has a lot to do with the film. There was a very successful mm. 1964 film. At Adaptation with Audrey Hepburn. Some right. might argue she was miscast. You know, a lot of people thought it should have been Julie Andrews. Although, if you don't know this, and I can't imagine you don't know this, <laughs> things worked out pretty well for Julie Andrews because she ended up doing Mary Poppins that year and right. she won the Academy Award, beating out Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn so, yeah. you know, she's quite happy with how that all worked out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny that she got her, her, her award in the end because when I was doing research for this, I realized I didn't know this, that she didn't win the Tony that year. You know, it won no. six Tony, Tony Awards, including Best Musical, but she lost to Judy Holiday for Bells Are Ringing. Well, I think we, we look at it through the lens of, of what we know and what, right. what we tend to forget is that back then she wasn't Julie Andrews yet. No, right? this is what made she, her Julie Andrews. Yeah, right, right. Judy Holiday was a big star oh, in, yeah. a, in a vehicle in a that, star was, vehicle. that yeah. was written for her. And, yeah. and if you know anything about Bells Are Ringing, you know it's a really tough show to do if you're not Judy Holiday. My Fair Lady, you know, the thing that I find so interesting about it is that it opened at the Mark Hellinger Theater, which is now the Times Square Church. Um, I'm sorry I had to say that sentence, but, you know, I had to share that knowledge. Um, then it moved to the Broadhurst Theater, which is obviously much, much smaller. Um, but then it moved to the Broadway Theater, which is huge. Right. And I find that so funny. You would never do that today. You would never move a hit show to a smaller theater, then move it to a bigger theater, right? Well, today you really don't move shows. We're gonna no, we're gonna talk about yeah. a lot of shows that did a that, lot of moving lot over of the moving. years. It was a yeah. really, yeah. you know, it was a it was a it was a thing that would happen, yeah. and uh, it doesn't happen so much anymore. Very rarely. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll say about about my fair lady, uh, and then we can move on. Uh, you know, uh, sort of as an example of how big of a deal the show was and and how it had this cultural crossover into the mainstream. It was the best-selling album in the country in yeah. 1956. The cast recording of My Fair Lady was the best-selling album. Not the best-selling cast album. The best-selling album, period. The culture was changing, and by the 60s, show tunes were no longer America's songbook, right? No, maybe, maybe hair got close. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, we'd I have can't. To look. We'd yeah, have to look. Yeah. Um, I will say a couple things I, I find interesting. Okay. Um, right, this, is, right. this is another show that everyone said couldn't be musicalized, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. primarily because there's no central love story right. in the plot, which, you know, again, 
this in a way sort of broke that convention, um, totally. which I think is yeah. interesting. Um, as we mentioned, I think before on this show, um, that Roger and Hammerstein decided not to adapt this musical, and it then went to Lerner and Lowe, who couldn't find mm-hmm. their way in. They couldn't quite figure out how to make it work. And in those days, the show was actually controlled by Chase Manhattan Bank, who had the rights or had they, they controlled the estate of Gabriel Pascal, who, who was the original film producer of Pygmalion, which was what they based My Fair Lady on. So the bank had the rights and the bank had wooed a studio in Hollywood to make a musical of Pygmalion. Yeah. And that got Lerner and Lowe interested again in trying to adapt it. They figured out a way to do it. And mm-hmm. without having the rights and knowing they didn't have the rights, they said, let's do it and see if we can win it. Which yeah. I think is, I mean, talk about like wow. knowing yeah. your strengths and just going for it. I love that story. All righty. Well, should we, should we move on to the 1960s? I think it's time for you to put on your Sunday clothes. Oh my gosh. Well, so in our second category, we're going to look at three shows that we are calling the Titans of the 1960s. And Jamie, kick it off with our first show. Well, I think it'll be no surprise that our first show is Hello, Dolly, which is Uh, a show that I can say with great assurity, Rob Russo and Jamie Dumont love. I'm just obsessed with Hello Dolly. I have been, you know, I've I've said on the show before. It's the reason that I fell in love with the theater. Um, you know, I saw the Long Beach High School production in 1998 uh, and was hooked. Um, but this, of course, obviously is you know the Jerry Herman musical from 1964, um, based on Thornton Wilder's uh, farce, The Merchant of Yonkers, which was a flop in 1938, um, and he later revised it into the much more famous and well-known uh, play, The Matchmaker, in 1955, uh, which had been produced by David Merrick, who um, optioned the play to become a musical, and then. Um, uh, called in Jerry Herman after seeing Milk and Honey, uh, Jerry Herman's first Broadway show in 1961, and basically had him audition to be the the composer for uh, Hello, Dolly. Um, and I always love the way that Jerry tells the story. I can't tell it you know, better than he could. But, um, you know, David Merrick's chief concern, having only seen Milk and Honey, was whether or not Jerry Herman was American enough to write Hello, Dolly, which is, you know, such an American story. Because Milk and Honey, of course, is set in Israel. And the music Golly, is- that sounds kind of anti-Semitic to me. Well, yes, it certainly does. Uh, side of the times. That sounds like a euphemism for something uh-huh. else. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, but Jerry didn't bat an eye. And he said, Mr. Merrick, uh, let me prove it to you. And he went home. And over the course of a weekend, he wrote four songs and came back on Monday morning, played them for David Merrick. And David Merrick famously sat back in his all-red office and said, kid, you've got the job. And of course, those four songs, uh, three of them would end up being in the final show. Um, and, you know, it's just a testament to the genius of Jerry Herman that he locked himself in his West Village apartment and wrote three songs that are enduring classics over the course of, you know, a single weekend uh, to audition for the project. What I love about that story is that he wrote Sunday Clothes as one of those songs, and the version that he wrote for this audition is the version that appears in the show. Not a right. word, not right. nothing was changed. Right. That what he wrote that weekend is exactly what ended up in the show. Put on 
your Sunday clothes. There's lots of world out there. Get out the brilliantine and dime the cigar. We're gonna find adventure in the evening air. Girls in white in a perfume night where the lights are bright as the stars. Put on your Sunday clothes. We're gonna ride through town in one of those new horse-drawn open cars. We'll see the shows at Delmonico's and we'll close the town in a world. But we won't come home until we kiss the This was a terrible experience for Jerry Herman, though. He did not yes. have a good, That's he has right. said, yeah. he has said multiple times and he has an excellent biography, which I mm-hmm. know Rob has read. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he talks about um, how terrible Merrick was, how he was constantly, you know, worried about losing his job. Merrick would, I, I, Merrick was sort of, there's a great bi- biography on Merrick called The Abominable Showman. If you haven't <laughs> read it, you should. But he, Merrick yeah. was also famous for pitting people against each other and also yes. trying to, you know, his tactic was I'll scare the shit out of you and get you to work better. So he was constantly bringing in, you know, a new director to, you know, a director to look in on rehearsals and scare the director, or, you know, whatever the, yeah choreographer and he did that with Jerry Herman he brought in um Charles Strauss and a couple of other people to Bob sort of Merrill s- I think Bob Merrill yeah. exactly yeah. and uh what I love about this is at during that process where Herman was sort of being scared, I guess, to work better, that's when he wrote um before the parade passes by. And he truly feels that that not only is it the heart and soul of the show, but yeah. it also is the song that saved his job. It was the song that he wrote that Merrick finally went, okay. He's got it. We're good. Before the parade passes by, I'm going to go and taste Saturday's high life. Before the parade passes by, I'm going to get some life back into my life. I'm ready to move out in front. I've had enough of just Passing my life with the rest of them, with the best of them, I can hold my head up high. For I've got a goal again, I've got to drive again. I'm gonna feel my heart coming alive again before the parade passes by. It really is the spine of the show, and it's a perfect example of you know the value of going out of town, right? I mean, they were out of town when they added before the parade passes by um, to the show, and it became you know obviously sort of the anthem and like I said, the spine of the show. Um, well, it also I think very importantly sets up Dolly so that you fall in love with her irreparably. I mean, you, from that moment on, you are on her side a thousand percent. I mean, you love her from the very first minute and there've been a lot of people. We'll talk about all the famous dollies, but it's a beautiful character and she starts out very strong, but it's in that moment where she becomes a a whole person and, and you really, really get to know what her, what her motivations are and, 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 and her struggles. And it's, it's beautiful. Look at that crowd up ahead. Listen and hear that brass harmony growing. Look at that crowd up ahead. Pardon me if my old spirit is showing. All of those lights over there. 
seem to be telling me where I'm going When the whistle blows and the cymbals crash And the sparklers light the sky I'm gonna raise the roof, I'm gonna carry on Give me an old trombone, give me an old baton Before the parade passes along we focused on Jerry Herman, of course, because, you know, name a better score than Hello, Dolly. You can't. Um, but the unsung hero of Hello, Dolly, I think, is Michael Stewart, who wrote the book. And um, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary book. It is so airtight. It is so smart. It is so funny. Um, I actually have read The Matchmaker. I was curious. I read The Matchmaker. Um, and I know Hello, Dolly very well from having seen it um, a redacted number of times on Broadway. Um, and you can really see the artistry and the craft behind how, how uh, Michael Stewart took that play and, and put it on stage, particularly around the Dolly character. You know, she's not in the play, despite the fact it's called The Matchmaker. She's not in the play as much. She's not the through line that she is in the musical. And the biggest thing he did was take one monologue that occurs at the end of the play, The Matchmaker, and s- cut it up so that it occurs throughout the the musical. Um, basically, every time Dolly's out on the passerelle and you know speaking to her her late husband Ephraim Levi, um, you know that each of those moments is part of what is one monologue in the play, um, and it's just you know an example of someone who, whether through intuition or you know through studying, just had such an innate sense of of how to structure a musical. And, and how to deliver all the beats that you need to have to tell a story successfully. And when we sat with his sister, Francine Pascal, who did the book revisions to Mac and Mabel, she mentioned to us how Michael, Michael, like I know him, Michael Stewart, how Mr. Stewart um, likened the book of a musical to train tracks. Um, that is that, you know, they're, when you're on the train, you don't see the train tracks, but you know they're there. And they operate, you know, they do their job and they operate seamlessly. If a book is great, you don't think about it, right? It's, it's, it's so good that it's invisible. If you can talk about the book, which is, you know, perhaps why we led with the score, um, you know, nine times out of 10, it's because it's problematic, right? Um, and Hello, Dolly is just, it's just a perfect book. I agree with that. And I think the, the, the last revival is, is the best example of that because just glorious. it, yeah. it just, it, it every joke lands. Mm-hmm. It it moves so quickly, and there's a fair amount of book. There's a very long sort of <clears throat> book scene. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of sort of long book scene moments, and yeah. they just fly by. and And some of Dolly's speeches are really touching and really yeah. really smart. So I agree with you, um, Rob. How did Hello Dolly get its name? Well, um, you know, it was originally titled Dolly, A Damned Exasperating Woman. What a title for a musical. Uh, And then, of course... There has to be uh, an exclamation point in there somewhere. Somewhere, right? Yeah. And then they changed it to Call on Dolly, which, of course, is the first lyric in the whole show. Not a bad title. On Dolly. You know, Um, at the top of uh, the show. Um, And then, um, which is fascinating to me, they gave the the song "Hello Dolly" um, uh, to Louis Armstrong to record um, before the show even 
uh, came to Broadway, right? This is before it was even out of town, I think. And it was released and was instantly became a hit. And so David Merrick changed the name of the show to Hello, Dolly, simply because of the success of that song. And then, of course, it became sort of an anthem for for in 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 many different contexts, right? Uh, this was in 1964. The show opened, and it was an election year, and Jerry Herman did a, a different version of the song with different lyrics uh, in support of Lyndon Johnson's campaign. Right. Uh, Hello, Lyndon. Right. And then, of course, famously did another version of it um, for Oscar Mayer. That was Hello, Delhi. It was a, a, a deli meat commercial. Um, and he sings all the versions of it um, in his, his nightclub show, uh, An Evening with Jerry Herman, which you can find on Spotify. And it's so delightful to hear Jerry Herman tripping through these lyrics. Hello, Deli. Deli taste is here today. Deli taste the only way. Deli will never be the same again. And there actually is a deli on 53rd Street called Hello Deli. Uh, that I did not know. Yeah, I pass it all the time, and I think, oh, you know, I, I wonder, I mean, they have to have made the connection. There's no other reason why it would be named Hello Deli yeah. without knowing that 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 pun. Whether it's um, officially sh- sanctioned or not, who knows? Right, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Hello Dolly ran uh, 2,844 performances at the St. James Theater from 1964 to 1970. It's a seven-year run. Um, it won 10 1964 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. It holds the title today of being the 20th longest-running Broadway show. Uh, it's had four revivals, of course, most notably, uh, most recently, the 2017 revival of Bette Midler. But speaking of Bette Midler, Jamie, why don't you share with us some of the, the, the famous women who have played the role of Dolly Levi? Well, in the original run, obviously Carol Channing, Ginger mm-hmm. Rogers, Martha Ray, Betty Grable, Phyllis Diller, and then Ethel Merman closed that original production. But also... Right. Probably the most famous of the Dollies uh, in that time period outside of Carol Channing would have to be Pearl Bailey, um, yes. which in its day was quite, you know, quite innovative. They, they, they recast the show with an all black cast. They put in Pearl Bailey, who, the, and it's recorded. You can hear, uh, it's you can fantastic. hear how marvelous. She yeah. was. And look, this this whole show was written for Ethel Merman. I don't think that's a surprise. I think most people know that. She turned it down because she wanted a normal life. She wanted mm-hmm. to be able to, as she said to David Merrick, I want to be able to eat dinner at 8 o'clock like a normal person. <laughs> um, and she ended up obviously going back into the show. She couldn't be normal for too long. Right. But, yeah. um, but Pearl Bailey, I think, really, I... I I think it's hard to, I think you have to give her a lot of credit in terms of the popularity of the show, the legacy of the show, the enduring quality of the show. That was, yeah. she really pushed it to the next level. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, despite the fact we've already pointed out David Merrick's um, latent anti Semitism or perhaps just wearing it on his coat sleeves, um, it was pretty, you know, bold of him as a producer. You have to give him some credit for in 1967, you know, sort of height of the civil rights movement. Um, putting an all black cast in a, in a musical on Broadway. I mean that, you know, in a musical that wasn't, um, you know, sort of written 
uh, by African Americans or or meant to take place, you know, or or, or dramatize a specific milieu or community. It's not like Porgy, Be- Porgy and Bess, right, or Shuffle Along, right? Shows that were written by African Americans or were meant to depict an African American community. This is Hello Dolly, which um, you know does not have an explicit sort of racial um, uh, uh, lens to it. And to to do that, to put an all black cast uh, in the show was was pretty bold and ended up paying off, right? I mean, it it was a huge success. They they recorded it, um, and Pearl Bailey toured with it and brought the show back to Broadway in 1975. And its first revival was Pearl Bailey. Yeah, um, back you know back on Broadway. She's she is is entwined in the legacy of this show oh, yeah. as oh, as yeah. anyone else. And then. I also have to mention my personal favorite, yes. Mary Martin, who yes. did Dolly in Asia, but also in the West End. And that right. production was recorded too. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's it's the recording I listen to. It's I my know. it's my go-to recording. Primarily, I yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm not shy <laughs> about it. Primarily because in the big Hello Dolly number, she yodels. If you're Mary Martin, you got to yodel. Um, but it's a fabulous, fabulous recording. Um, it's very different. Uh, she, her take is very different. In fact, you know, I have to say I was never a big Mary Martin fan. I didn't quite, mm. you know, on recordings, obviously. Yeah. I never saw her. I didn't quite get it. And then when I heard this recording, I instantly understood why she was the star that she was. It all yeah. made sense to me. She's absolutely magnificent. I do mm. also have to say there were a couple of interesting replacements. Um, yeah. Ernestina was replaced. There was a replacement of Ernestina that was Mabel King, um, huh. with obviously with um, Pearl Bailey. I love yeah. that. Um, there, there was a mini Faye replacement to Georgia Ingle and Leland Palmer. Oh my gosh! Wow. So um, I just had to say that. And then, of course, we have the revival that was helmed <sighs> by Miss Bette Midler. Oh my gosh! I, I, as I said, I saw that show a redacted number of times, and. Um, so all the dollies, Jamie and I were very fortunate to be able to see not just uh, the Broadway dollies, uh, Bette Midler, Donna Murphy, and Bernadette Peters, um, but to go on tour and see Betty Buckley in Boston, who was just incredible, and Carolee Carmelo in Philadelphia. Um, I, I think I've said this before. When when they announced that the show was closing on Broadway, my first thought was, "Oh no, I'm never going to get to see Carolee Carmelo do it." And then, of course, uh, you know, she was the replacement on the tour. Um, and there is any number of people I would I would still love to see play this role. Uh, Audrey McDonald, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, but uh, the ones we had in this last revival to me were just and you know, every one of them brought something to the role and made it her own. Um, and it was so fun to see that. And I'm so happy we got to go to Boston to see Betty because, I mean, her performance, it was so different. And it was so exciting to see, you know, an, an artist of her caliber 
take on an iconic role and and do her version of Dolly, right? And, and all of them did that. You can say that for all of them, whether Bernadette Peters or Bette Midler, of course, or Donna Murphy, who is just, I mean, you know. All hail God. Donna Murphy. All hail Donna Murphy, you know? I mean, just, they were all the women who we love and adore, and they, it was such a thrill to see them all excel on, in, in this role. I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I had the great fortune of seeing Betty Buckley do it twice. I saw her do it in San Francisco. Oh, that's right. Yes. And then mm-hmm. we, we traveled to Boston yeah. specifically to see Betty Buckley, right. um, yeah. which was a marvelous evening. I have to say, the thing I loved about Betty's performance was that she, and she was the only Dolly that truly did this. She was part like freight train and part fragile bird and mm, and sometimes yeah. in the same moment and right. th- it was such a beautifully nuanced performance and it's yeah. t- again I, I, look i i feel like we should turn this into the betty buckley love fest our show <laughs> um but it's true and it was really yeah. remarkable and and thank god that we got to see her do that because it was so extraordinary and then i just have to say about carolee carmella who was also mm-hmm brilliant. Rob is a huge Carolee Carmelo fan. And she was meant to play this role. She was meant to play this. Yes, absolutely. But when we saw it in Philadelphia, (laughs) as the trolley's coming out and Rob knows that Carolee is behind one of those newspapers, I could just feel the warmth emanating from his body. He sat up straight. He got a smile. I, it's yeah. the, and I've sat next to you a lot in the theater. So, and I've never has that happened. I mean, it was really extraordinary. Um, and, she, and she delivered. Oh, oh yeah. God, that was a oh, great yeah. performance. They all did. Oh, Every God. single one of them. I don't mean mm-hmm. to single out oh, Betty no, and... Well, because they're all so different. You yeah. know, you can't... That's when, when people would say, who was your favorite? I'd say, I can't answer that question. That's an impossible question because they were each my favorite in different ways. Right. Know? And I think, again, and we should, we should move off of Dolly in a second. The other thing that's so extraordinary about this production was that it, now, it paid tribute to Carol Channing and to all the Dollies that came before, but it mm-hmm. actually freed us of that because these women were all so different right. and also magnificent that it, right. it, al- it allowed the show to breathe and, mm-hmm. and become a new thing again. And that's hard to do. And, oh, and yeah. yet it was such a faithful, faithful production, right? It was yeah. just so, it honored what the original production I imagine was. And, and that's, yep. that's huge. I'm going to raise the roof, I'm going to carry on, give me an old trombone, give me an old baton, before the parade has fallen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No well, look, when you have Jerry Zachs and Warren Carlyle collaborating on a show, you know, you know it's going to be just the tops. And uh, I guess we'll find out when Broadway comes back uh, with the Music Man. Um, we'll get to see them them work together again, which I'm really excited for. But moving on to our second 1960s Titan, uh, <laughs> which was just one season later, which is unbelievable to think about. Um, Could you imagine... Going I know. It's the embarrassment of riches, you know, going from Hello Dolly in 1964 in the spring of 1964 to the fall of 1964 at the Imperial Theater, you could see Fiddler on the Roof. Oh my God. Which is Jamie's favorite musical. Is that true? Or is it um, The King and I? No, it's not my favorite musical. It's, oh, it's, okay. it's All right, no. I think it's the greatest musical. Okay. Right. Well, so, which are different yeah. things. I think, Absolutely. I think yeah, Fiddler yeah. on the Roof is the the great musical of all time. Mm-hmm. I think it's a perfect musical. I love it. It's not my favorite musical. And you, you know, you, Rob, you always say, oh, anyone can whistle is Jamie's favorite musical. Well, yeah, Follies yeah. is Jamie's favorite musical. King and I, I mean, yeah, I, you know, this is the, we're living in this thing. I do. I, you know, I don't have right. one, I have 20, um, right. which is what we're doing today. Literally. But, <laughs> literally. Um, but I do think Fiddler on the Roof is, is the great musical of all time. And I think that, um, Joel Gray said it best uh, mm. about the success and why it endures. Yeah. And Joel said, everybody thinks it's about them. Right. And I think that sums it up perfectly. I think that's yeah. that, to a T. Well, that, that, that was the, the great sort of surprise of the whole thing, right? Um, Hal Prince, the producer of the show, legendary producer of the show, um, you know, was told by a lot of by a lot of people. You know, are you crazy? No one's going to see the show beyond Jews in New York, right? And once you've once all the Jews in New York who go to the theater have seen it, it's going to close, right? It's too parochial. And it was Jerome Robbins, uh, director choreographer uh, on this piece, who who you can really credit for for taking you know the stories of Shalom Aleichem um, and uh, and pushing the the uh, writers of the show, so Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, um, who wrote the the score, and Joseph Stein, who wrote the book, um, to to tell the story in a way that it could be true, as Joel Gray said, that everyone could think it's about them. And the key to that, and this story has been told so many times, it's probably apocryphal at this point. But the, while they were working on the show, they would meet, and Jerry would would push his collaborators and say, "What is this show about? What is this show about?" and you know, in every meeting, they would answer, "Well, you know, it's about Tevia the milkman and his daughters." And he'd say, "No, that's the, that's the plot. What is it about? What's the idea? What's the?" And finally, in one of the meetings, and everybody claims that it was somebody else. Someone said, "Tradition. It's about tradition." And Jerry Robbins sat back, sort of smirked, and said, "Yeah, that's your opening number." In doing that, in in starting the show, you know, because originally as written, it started with a song called We Never Missed the Sabbath Yet. It was the family getting ready for the Sabbath, which is now the second scene of the show, right? But in the first scene, 
it now starts with the song tradition, right? Which describes, you know, all the members of the community and their roles. And through that process, not only sets up all the characters, not only creates the world that you're living in, which is, you know, 1905 Russia, um, but also builds the bridge to the audience so slyly because every single person in that audience is a papa, a mama, a son, or a daughter, right? And you instantly identify yourself. You're not realizing you're doing it, but you, you're, you're called upon to do it. And from that moment on, you're hooked. And it's got to be the best opening number in Broadway history, at least the most effective, um, in, in setting up the entirety of the show. And then from there, it's the train tracks, you know, it's the it's Joseph Stein's book is just perfection. Well, I, I might a little later in this show pick an argument with you about what the greatest opening number oh, well, is. There's there's fifty of them. Right? There's fifty but, of yes. them. But, but for the moment, I'm gonna I'm just gonna let you have that because I don't I don't mm-hmm. disagree. But you are absolutely right. There really isn't there isn't a number I can think of that better sets up everything that's mm-hmm. about to happen and also prepares the audience for what they're, the journey they're going to go on. And it, I, yeah. I, I do agree with you. I can't think of another opening that does it yeah. quite as, as, as brilliantly as that. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that story actually. I oh, love really? it. I oh, know. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. it's funny, you know, when we do this preparation audience, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, we do a fair amount of prep work individually and then we kind of marry our things together and most of the time there's a lot of crossover we we, you know we we, we want to talk about the same things but every once in a while um i say something you've never heard before and i i love that story that's isn't it incredible it's great it's well you know it's also like there is no fiddler without jerome robbins i mean that 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 more so as we have now learned than his his involvement with West Side Story. I don't know that you can extract Jerome Robbins from Fiddler in in, in, in at all yeah. completely like you can with the revival of West Side Story. It was all new choreography. I don't think I don't think Fiddler would be successful if you stripped everything that he did out of it. I, yeah. I, I, I well, just, it's it, and his contribution to just baked into the DNA of it, right? It, I mean, he's, he's truly the auteur of the piece, even though he didn't write any of it. Um, his fingerprints are all over it. And no matter what, no matter what version you want to do, I mean, we just saw the glorious revival that, that Joel Gray uh, directed. <laughs> um, How many Yiddish, times did we right? see that? <laughs> uh, again, redacted, but um, you know, and even that, which had a different director and a different choreographer yep. and its own vision and was in a different language, you still felt the presence of Jerome Robbins. And that's not a criticism of anyone. It's, it's a celebration of, of his contributions to the piece. Yes. Um, it's so intrinsic to the, to the piece. And of course, you know, it, it, it was this phenomenon on Broadway, right? I mean, a block away from Hello, Dolly, uh, half a season later, you have another gargantuan hit lines around the block because in that in those days you couldn't buy tickets any other way than showing up at the theater right um and uh i think this is the 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 story is that you know the day after it opened their line was so long that hal prince had um had caterers come and set up coffee and bagels (laughs) to to feed the people waiting online to buy tickets because it was so long and they were waiting for so long um 
I know. Trick, I will say, my husband has stolen on multiple, multiple You learn from the best. You learn from the best, yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, it would go on, of course, to run uh, 3,242 performances from 1964 to 1972, uh, over seven years and 10 months, becoming the longest-running musical on Broadway, a title it held from 1971 until 1979, and has had five Broadway revivals, uh, not to mention the off-Broadway revival we just saw, which ran longer than, you know, probably uh, at least the last two revivals that have been on Broadway. that legend you know he was he was a difficult man to work with apparently mm-hmm. this was a very contentious uh, rehearsal process right. robbins and zero mostel fought quite a bit there was lots of lots of things going on there's that famous story of jerome robbins falling into the pit you know he's yelling mm-hmm. at the he's yelling right. at the actors on stage and he's backing up and backing up and backing up until he falls in the pit and he was so disliked during that process that nobody stopped him to say that he was about <laughs> to fall into the pit that has yeah. been assigned to west side story b arthur has always told that it happened during fiddler well maybe it happened multiple times who knows you know? <laughs> dancer deborah jowett claims that it was during 1945's billion dollar baby so who oh, knows okay. when it really happened yeah. i think it's most attributed to Fiddler, but I I think it's even in that documentary Miracle of Miracles. But regardless of that, they certainly put a spectacular show together. Oh my gosh, yeah. And, you know, there was a string of of, of Tevyas in that original production, of course, starting with the famous Zero Mistel and, um, you know, going on to Luther Adler and Herschel Bernardi, Harry Gauze, uh, Paul Lipson. Leonard Nimoy did it. Leonard, there you go. Not on Broadway, in Boston, but still. Okay. Okay, okay. And then revivals, right? So there was the 1971 film with uh, Topol, and he headlined you know, a tour and then the 1990 revival on Broadway. Of course, there's the 2004 revival with Alfred Molina, who was replaced by Harvey Firestein. Who was brilliant. Uh, I saw both of them. I did yeah, too. Yes. I actually saw Topol do it. Oh, really? I oh, did. Cool. I, I, uh, I, have to, I actually worked on the tour with Topol and Marsha Rod. And then the 2015 revival with Danny Burstein, who, you know, I know that revival was not necessarily praised, but I actually, I loved it. I thought it was gorgeous. It was the Bartlett Scher production. And I thought Danny Burstein, talk about a role that someone was you know, born to play. I thought he was magnificent. I thought Jessica yeah. Hecht was great. I, uh, I, I thought yeah. it, it didn't. I thought the first act was really magnificent, and then it, I, it yeah. sort of wandered a bit in the second act for me. But you know, people had the the Alfred Molina. There was a lot of criticism oh, about the, the David Laveau production, yeah, right? Was, about the you yeah. know how it was just full of Irish Catholic girls, you know, right? Uh, Lack playing. of authenticity, right? Yeah. And 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 I yeah. loved that revival. I, again, I understand that argument, and I don't think anybody was wrong in saying that. But yeah. um, but they were all magnificent. I mean, you know, I'll watch Sally yeah. Murphy do literally anything. Well, it's amazing. You know, the original production is so iconic, and and um, you know, part of the iconography it, of the show is the use of the Chagall paintings as right. inspiration for not just the logo design, but the set design itself. And Boris Aronson, the famous um, set designer, 
um, you know, created that set. And amazingly, you know, the show won nine 1965 Tony Awards, including, of course, Best Musical. The only award it lost uh, was for set design, which is yeah, so tragic. Which is, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> the set was, you know, so praised, right? But what I thought, speaking of the set of the show, you know, which has become part of you know, the way that people think of the show, what I liked about the last revival is, you know, there's always this, the last Broadway revival, there's always this looming sense of, you know, what happens to the characters after the show, right? Because it's 1905 and they're being forced out of Anatevka. And, you know, it's a story of the Jewish people, right? And you know, of course, that the ones who go to Europe just 40 years later are, you know, facing genocide. And that looms over the show. And of course, you know it. And for audiences in 1964, it was very real and very visceral because, you know, you had a, a real temporal tie to those times. But what I liked about the 2015 revival, the way it was designed, is there was sort of imagery used throughout the piece in very subtle ways that sort of nodded to the Holocaust. And it was very eerie and very unsettling, but not heavy-handed. And I, I, I thought that was tremendously effective. And then not to mention the total reimagining of the show with the um, National Yiddish Theater Folkspina's production <laughs> that Joel Gray did, which you know was a, its own very different, very pared down production that also, I mean, sort of is the answer to the question or the criticism of the 2004 revival in terms of authenticity, right? Not just because of the the language, but the 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 way that the characters are more faithfully sort of portrayed based off of the original stories. And Stephen Skybell will always be the best Tevye I've ever seen. I, I, I cannot imagine someone being a better Tevye than him. I agree with that entirely. And I think that yeah. Revival, for many reasons, is my favorite. And I've seen Fiddler many, many, many times. Um, I worked on it, uh, as I mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, yeah. And it, there was just... It was so beautiful, and we've we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. The fact that it was in a language that you didn't speak or that mm -hmm. I don't speak really allowed me to lean in and focus yep. on the emotion and the storytelling in a way that I never have before. And it was such an extraordinary experience. And I I think that. Um, I think in some ways there'll never be another production quite like that. But I can't wait yeah. for the next production because there's going to be another right. brilliant of production course. that yep. figures out another way to yeah. help yeah. you lean into the story in a new way that you haven't done before. You know, I, I have to say there's a there was a, a documentary called Miracle of Miracles that came out about the sort mm -hmm. of the legend and the lore of the show. Um, it's a fine documentary. I believe it's streaming. You can watch it. But they make a claim, and now this is pre-COVID, the world, right? Yeah. So this is pre-everything yeah. shut down. But they made a claim uh, that said that ever since Fiddler debuted um, on Broadway uh, September of September 22nd of 1964, the show has been performed every day somewhere around the world. Now, <laughs> there's no way to corroborate that necessarily without oh, doing a lot yeah. of research. And I don't think it's yeah. abs I don't think it's actually true. But what a lovely <laughs> sentiment. How like just I want it to be true. I want yeah, it to be yeah. true because I th yeah. and I think it's not far off from being true. Yeah, but um yeah. but well you know to to put a pin on this conversation, you know, I think the reason why it's performed so much, the reason why it resonates, the reason why everyone sees themselves in it, um, it is, you know, as Jerome Robbins pointed out, tradition. Um, but to me, you know, the show will always be relevant because it's about change. Yep. You know, and and human beings, societies, 
change and and at its core you know that is what it's about as a reflection of tradition right i mean that's you know obviously the other it's the the yin and the yang right um and you know it will always be relevant because children will always be rebelling from their parents and you know minority groups will always be you know persecuted or fighting for you know for inclusion and respect and equality and you know there, there's so many thematic tie-ins that will just always remain relevant so long as human beings roam the earth. Sadly, um, racism will always be part of our world. Well, you know, I mean, I'd like to hope it wouldn't be, but yeah. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk briefly about our third titan of the 1960s, um, which might be one that folks are not expecting. Um, but in going through and doing the analysis of, you know, sort of the biggest hits of the 60s, this was in fact the third biggest Broadway hit of the 1960s. And it's a musical that I personally just absolutely adore. And that is Man of La Mancha. Yes, The Impossible Dream. The Impossible Dream, yeah. Quite an interesting musical. And what part of the history that I find so fascinating about, about it is that it was first developed as a, as, a, as a TV play for CBS in 1959. And it's, you know, if you know the show, it's, you know, it's inspired by Miguel de Cervantes and his 17th century novel Don Quixote, but it's not a strict adaptation of that work. And I, you know, over the years, I think the writers of the show have responded to criticism or just, you know, uh, confusion around the fact that they created their own thing, right? Inspired by, you know, the story of the Mad Knight, Don Quixote. Um, but the whole thing is a play within a play, you know, with Cervantes himself as a character. And I find that structure to be so fascinating and you know, quite not just impressive, but, you know, an innovation in its time, right? I mean, it's very much a product of, of that ethos of the 1960s of, of pushing boundaries and, and challenging, you know, conventions. And the score is very unconventional in that regard. I mean, there's, there are no stringed instruments other than plucked guitars. It uses some Spanish instrumentation, which, of course, was something, a different sound to be heard on Broadway. And the whole thing premiered at the Anta Theater in Washington Square, which, if you know Manhattan, you know that Washington Square is not in the theater district. And that is correct. It is downtown. And this was a theater that was built as a temporary theater, sort of as a prototype for the Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Center and housed by the American National Theater and Academy and was destroyed in 1968. Manuel La was the last show to play there. But you had this show that was sort of a first-class Broadway production, but at this downtown theater. So it already had sort of this, this outsider you know, artsier kind of edge to it from its very inception. And, you know, show opened in 1965, again, that same season, you know, the next season after Fiddler, and, uh, you know, won Best Musical in 1966, and would run until 1971, five years and seven months, and still holds its title today as the 31st longest-running Broadway show. Well, it's not a show that I have a lot to say. Tell. I'm I'm watching. We have a video set up right now. I'm watching Jamie's uh, lack of interest. My eyes glaze over. Um, Well, the reality is it's not a show I'm particularly fond of. Um, In fact, Mm -hmm. I've seen it twice and I I, I actually have zero memory of either. I saw my husband worked on a production with Raul Julia and Sheena Easton that toured Mm, that I saw I think in San Francisco or LA. I can't remember where. And I have Mm -hmm. almost no memory of that. I have more memories of the sort of backstage squabbles of that production, (laughs) which wasn't a very particular, it wasn't particularly popular. And um, I've got some stories about her that would curl your toes. 
Um, but that's another podcast. And I yeah. saw, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, didn't Marin Mazzi go in and take over the role for the revival um, that was done with Brian Stotes Mitchell? Am I making that up? You know, I don't remember. It was Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio at first, but I don't know who replaced her. I, yeah, it think, been Mary. I think it was yeah. Marin Mazzi. I think that's why I went. And again, I have yeah. no memory of that of that yeah. of seeing it, although I know I went because I can clearly see Marin, unless I'm yeah. conflating and making up, which is possible. I yeah, will say yeah. my real knowledge of that show comes from Linda Edder's spectacular oh rendition of the man of uh, La Mancha. That, that's, that's not only is it without question, the best recording of that song. Oh my God. Yes. It's, it's spectacular, but that's really what I know about the show and what I remember and what I relate to. So I, I again, yeah, yeah. I, I can't be um, particularly helpful in this. It's had four Broadway revivals. Um, you mentioned the Raul Julia. Most of them with um, Richard Kiley. <laughs> yeah, well, I was about to say Richard Kiley, who created the role, and then it sort of became his, you know, sort of like Yul Brenner and The King and I. It sort of became his meal ticket for the rest of his career. <laughs> he did it on Broadway in 1965, and then in 1972, and then in 1977. Um, but the 2002 revival with Brian Stokes Mitchell um, was the first time I saw the show, first time I ever encountered the show, and I was blown away. And I listened to that recording, you know, once or twice a year, which is not often enough. But when every time I do, I sit back and I think, Jesus Christ, no offense to anyone who that's offensive to, what a gorgeous score. Every single song on that album. It's one of those no-skip albums. I listened to it from start to finish. There's not a single song I would want to skip. Dulcinea, I mean, what a gorgeous song. Dulcinea Dulcinea I see heaven when I see thee Dulcinea And thy name is like a prayer An angel That is pretty. I will say, I listened. So I listened to this uh, recording um, in the last couple of days, uh, yeah. uh, primarily because it was Brian Stokes Mitchell, and also primarily because when I put it on, I was convinced it was Marin Mazzi, and I found out I was wrong. Um, so I might just be making this whole Marin thing up, but uh, I will say. I had forgotten what a beautiful song Little Bird, Little Bird is. I mean, that is a oh, gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous ballad. Um, I, I'll say something I find interesting about this show is that it was translated into over 20 different languages. Wow. And that's a lot. I mean, you know, yeah. there's, uh, you know, Mame might be up there. Hello, Dolly. I don't, I don't know. Fiddler, if, of course. Fiddler, of course. But yeah. that's yeah. 20 20 languages is a lot. Um, a lot, yeah. But I think this show, I think what's this... Now, 
again, I can't count myself as one of these people, but I am one of these people. I think this show resonates with people Mm -hmm. because it's about a dreamer. It's about an underdog. It's about, you know, everybody loves a, a a prostitute with a heart of gold. Like it's, it's, (laughs) but it, I think it resonates with people because it, 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 it speaks to that, like that thing we all have, which is, you know, we all, we all want to dream. We all want to fight. We all, you know, we all have that in us. And I think it's very, very powerful. Um, and I think, look at, look at what happened recently in our shutdown, Brian Stokes Mitchell singing that, and it has an anthem, right? Like everybody's down for an anthem, but, even Brian Stokes Mitchell singing Impossible Dream out of his window during the yeah. beginning of the shutdown, that was a huge boost to people's morale. That was that video yeah. went everywhere. And even when you couldn't, the first video where you couldn't quite hear him, that went everywhere. And I think that's yeah. part of the power of the show is that it speaks to so many people who want to fit in, who want to belong, who want to who you know, pursue their dream, fight for what they think is right. That one man, scorned and covered with scars, still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the Oh my God, Brian Stokes Mitchell. I, I I can't even with that voice. No, no, and that that recording is iconic. And then of course, you know, he still sings it uh, often. It's become one of his his signature songs for good reason. Rob, you're selling me on Man of La Mancha. I, I can't know. believe it. What have <laughs> you done that? to me? If I've done nothing else with this podcast alone, this was all a ruse to get you to love Man of La Mancha. Yeah, and thoroughly modern Millie, but that's well, a different. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Well, I think uh, we should pause here for this week uh, and we'll pick up next time uh, with the swinging 70s and the biggest hits of that, uh, that, that time period. Golly, Rob, leaping lizards. Do you think <laughs> the sun will come out tomorrow? <laughs> little preview there, a little preview there. Yeah, don't want to give anything away too much. Well, but. God, I hope I get it, you know. Ah, there we go. All right. Well, on that note, I think this is a perfect place to leave it and uh, we will be back next week with more. That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to tune in Wednesday. I never felt so. I never felt so.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.